Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people, with news, views and expert interviews. Hi, I'm Steve Randall. Welcome to Constructive Voices. On this episode, we're talking about sustainable housing. My messaging towards policymakers would be mostly to listen to what the market is saying. There is a need for this type of shift towards these types of conversions, towards the adoption of sustainable materials, towards these types of uh, uh, schemes to better address sustainability issues in the housing environment. We have one planet, we have a set of resources. Use what you can and make sure that what you have is actually being utilized, be that the resources that already exist or be that the housing stock that is already there. We're joined by two members of the Global Policy Research Group to discuss their recent report. And of course, Pete the Builder, Peter Finn, is here too in just a moment. Constructive Voices media partner in Ireland and the United Kingdom is Construction Industry News. Since 2002, Construction Industry News has been focused on the very latest projects and developments within the UK and Ireland. So, Pete, hi, how's things? All good, Steve, all good. How are you keeping? Yeah, very well, thank you. The sun has been shining a little bit more here, which is always a a positive thing, puts you in a good mood, and great to be back on the podcast talking with you and building the conversation that we've been really running through the first part of this year about sustainability and how we can build better, taking in all the aspects of climate change and biodiversity. And we've got a couple of great guests again today. Yeah, um, without a shadow of a doubt, we've got two great guests coming on today, a couple of guests that kind of give us an insight into into how these discussions um, are developed and where the, re- the, the results and, and the research that people uh, who make policy changes, where they get that information from. So for me, it was a real insight. It was, it was very good to, to kind of hear because you often hear about case studies and sample projects and you always say to yourself, I wonder who actually does that and where does it come from? And um, today, what we're, we're able to do is, is to give our listeners the insight um, into where, where this information comes from. Yeah, so they're um, from Global Policy Research group and they are Katharina Fay and Jordan Everett's and well I think what's interesting about what they're going to be talking about is that they've done these various samples in different areas and they highlight how you know it may work in one area and not work quite the same in others and I think that's an important takeaway you know with our global audience obviously certain factors will work everywhere but everything needs to be tweaked for regional and local markets. Yeah, without the shadow of a doubt, we've got we've got you know such a diverse planet, such a, a diverse world with so many different cultures and so many ingrained habits in in different countries, different climates, you know, just different ways of life. And I'm a firm believer that there's not one fix for every solution. If something works in one area, it doesn't mean that it's going to work in another area. And it's good to hear when these decisions are being made that that is taken into account that. You know, when policies are being put in place and when, you know, the people higher up the, the food chain than myself and yourself, Steve, are making these decisions that they that they do look at it from a lot of different perspectives. And of course, Pete, the thing that we have discussed and touched on before on the podcast is box ticking and whether sometimes things are done for the wrong reasons. And I know this bit of research has looked into that as well. Yeah. Um, when you hear the news and, and you, you hear about new policies being introduced, new regulations being introduced, 
there's always that fear in the back of your mind that's you know is it just a political uh, situation where the local politicians or the local government have decided to sway the mob or, or to sway the political point of view and and try and win votes by coming out with this new or greater uh, way of doing something that's going to solve so many issues and again the research that the that the guys do has shown where you know what, maybe that has been the case. Maybe that there has been situations where there's been policies put in place that have pushed maybe quantity over quality. And then when the numbers are released, it looks great that, you know, so many housing units have been released. There's been a, a re, reuse of, of certain buildings to suit what, what the need is in the area. But when you actually dive into it and the research is done on it, it probably wasn't done correctly. And there's been a lot of issues identified with that. A couple of case studies in the UK, unfortunately, have shown that. So, you know, again, it's good and it's refreshing to hear that these issues are being identified and that they don't just go um, by the wayside and, and people then just forget about them. They are being being identified and then at least the information is there for other policy uh, changers and, and, and people in power to be able to identify what has worked in the past and what hasn't worked and therefore hopefully make the right decisions going forward simply not to, to create um, some good publicity or, or to create good numbers that a politician can can say to the media or, or in whatever their their house of, of discussion is. So I really got a little bit of, of, uh, of hope when I heard that as well. It's, it's some interesting listening here and, and it certainly gives an, an, an insight into the, into the background of where all of uh, these decisions are made. And it was something that I always had a little bit of a a niche that, need, that needed scratch. There was something that I I always wondered about, um, and and again, great great that we've we've got these guests in and, and that they're you know giving us this insight. They're both young, very well educated, and, and 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 very diverse people in terms of you know they come from different parts of the world. They've travelled and and they've lived their, uh, you know different lives, and yet they're able to contribute to providing information and and uh, giving case studies, giving results. They look at it from a biodiversity point of view. They look at it from cultural, the focus being on the relocation from the urban to rural that's going on. And obviously COVID has accelerated that. And again, the interviewers uh, certainly dive into that and give us some insight into that as well. They've been talking to Jackie DeBurka, so let's have a listen. Thank you very much for inviting us. Um, my name is Katerina Fay. I'm with Google Policy Research Group, and we are both from the Environmental Solutions team. Uh, my name is Jordan Everts. I am with, uh, as Katharina said, the Environmental Solutions Team at Global Policy Research Group, and I am from uh, Reedsville, Pennsylvania. Um, the Global Policy Research Group was born only a few years ago. Um, it came out of Lund University, Sweden, one of the top universities for economics and management. And it aims to fill the gap that most think tanks and policies and research groups do not provide detailed policy solutions. Um, we're coming in with a team of mostly students as well as some professionals um, to aid in innovation in an industry which is otherwise very much short of young perspectives. Um, we are, of course, based in Lund, Sweden, and our uh, lovely president is Bahadia Sarin, who is the main push behind all of this. Excellent. And Jordan, how did you become involved? So I became involved back in September of 2022. I was looking for uh, some uh, work in uh, potentially an internship in consulting, and it led me to uh, Global Policy Research Group. And I was really taken in with uh, 
the mission of the organization and what the potential was there for research wise. And so it was just a match made in heaven, I would say, in terms of what I was looking for and for what the team was looking to do. How does the group work? And essentially, you're both involved in the sustainability end of things, but how do you work as a group and how do you go from findings and research to getting those in front of policymakers? The way we start out is we start, as any good uh, research group does, is with research. Um, We research the current state of the laws, the current state um, of policy. And what we then do, what is very important, is that we look at past examples. Which policies have worked where and which ones haven't? And what what are the factors that enable them to function? Um, Besides that, very much we draw on the excellent uh, guidance of professors here at Lund University and other universities in creating policies that are innovative and not only something that has been tried before. A lot of what we see is shaped um, by the past, and that's very important. But if we are to have a sustainable future, we need to come up with new ideas as well. Excellent, Katharina. So, Jordan, let's talk about the report uh, Sustainable Approaches to the European Housing Crisis. Would you like to just introduce the aim of that report to our listeners? Yes, certainly. So the aim of the report that we wanted to address was the increasing demand for housing in the European Union. Right now, we have large gaps in the housing market in between demand and where current uh, construction levels are failing to meet that demand within the EU. So our first approach is was taking a sustainability angle and trying to understand how the European Union can continue to meet the demand for housing in the EU, while also maintaining uh, sustainability initiatives and sustainability goals towards a net zero future. Globally, what kind of findings did the report uh, come up with? Um, The main things we uh, targeted were four areas. We found that, first of all, we need a lot more incentive schemes, both in relation to sustainable materials and construction, and in relation to this disposable and the reuse of construction waste. Um, We also talked a lot about rezoning uh, with reference to land use and existing building conversions and some relocation schemes from urban to rural areas. This entire thing ties into uh, the approach, which is less new buildings mean less resource use. With our research and our evaluations, we found that we have a huge amount of building stock already present in the EU. The main point is that it's not for the uh, use that we need it for or not in the areas that we need them in. Um, The main approach of our policy paper was thus to address that issue. How do we convert it or how do we get people to accept housing in places they were maybe not previously attractive? How do we make those areas attractive? How interesting. Now, let's talk on some of the countries that you would have delved into uh, case studies, you know, worst case scenario, better case scenario. So in our case studies, we looked at two countries that had similar initiatives in terms of from a planning perspective, but diverged in two very different ways. So the first one was England, the UK. There, the policy-wise, they embarked upon a more market-oriented positioning, um, which was shifting, allowing the market to dictate where the conversions were taking place and the quality of the conversions. And then we looked at the Netherlands, which was the second case study where there was a more state central approach to how conversions were handled and uh, sustain in the sustainable conversion of commercial real estate to residential housing. 
And between the two, we found that the, the best quality produced housing, new housing, in terms of uh, conversions of previously commercial spaces occurred in the Netherlands, taking a more state-directed approach as compared to England, where they had a more market-oriented approach through their laws and, and, and planning practices there, led to a lower quality conversion type that was actually not beneficial to the environment. Okay, so let's just hone in on that, Jordan. That's fascinating. So you're saying, for example, in the UK, the conversions are going to be low quality and unsustainable, and therefore one assumes from what you've said, not that attractive to, let's call the end user. Correct. With the more market-oriented approach, there were deficiencies in terms of how the conversions were taking place and complaints about the build quality of a lot of these conversions. And the one of the big aspects was, was the conversions were mostly geared towards a single young, new uh, renters within these spaces, and there weren't the conversions were not being built in a way that was uh, conducive towards maybe families and more middle-aged uh, market rent seekers in terms of uh, housing-related initiatives. Whereas in the Netherlands, however, they took a state-directed approach where they kept a heavy influence. They did not have hard-set targets for the uh, builders and the constructors who were producing the conversions, but they were strongly involved in the process in terms of directing where they wanted the goals to go. And it led to us, the in the UK, there was more, more housing produced compared to the Netherlands, but the quality was drastically different in terms of what was produced in the two countries. And in the Netherlands, it was more sustainability focused. And from a planning perspective, it ended up working out better than the policies of the UK. Let's talk about going back to the UK. What areas of the UK were these conversions carried out? So in the UK, one of the places that was uh, most, uh, that we cited in terms of our example was in Croydon, which is a borough of London. And in Croydon, they had an office vacancy rate of about 50% between 2013 and 2015. And during the time span from 2011 to 2021, there was a conversion of commercial spaces to residential space, which amounted in approximately 1,343 residential units that were produced. But in the UK, again, the, the quality was not up to par with what was the needs of the area. And so that was something that we had to take a look at when examining that case study. Because by and large, the metrics of how much housing, new housing was produced is on paper looks fantastic. I mean, between 2011 and 2021, there was approximately 20,200 new homes built in Croydon, of which those 1,343 residential units that were converted were part of. But sometimes quantity doesn't always mean quality. So that does seem that the approach in the UK mm -hmm. was very much like, let's, let's get the number so we look good, but not Mm -hmm. you know care about the actual detail correct and that was all part of the england this 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 policy 
implementation was called permitted development rights. That is the policy that led to these office conversions being this market-oriented approach. So what else from the report, Katharina, do you feel is really important to bring to the ears of our listeners and obviously in front of policymakers around Europe? Less new is uh, less resource use. Um, There's a quote from a European uh, minister which basically goes, Europe has already been built. We already have a lot of what we need and our populations are not growing. We are seeing, if anything, a reduction in population. We should thus be focusing on making areas attractive to people especially in the urban areas where we have a lot of building stock existing and a lot of other social issues. Um, We should thus uh, implement uh, some attractiveness schemes for these kind of things. We should uh, implement uh, transport networks. So that solves several problems at the one time. It solves a sustainability issue, both for building new housing stock, because that housing stock already exists, and it it attacks uh, the sustainability issue um, by building uh, sustainable transport as well, increasing the attractiveness um, of that area and reducing the need for new housing in urban areas. Okay, and what about biodiversity in those areas? Is biodiversity being taken into account, obviously, green spaces and nature-related uh, incentives? Um, biodiversity is taken into account insofar as in uh, city spaces, we are opposing the um, new builds, which would erase more green spaces from the access to nature and public spaces. Uh, moving people into more urban, uh, rural areas would also increase their access to that. Biodiversity, insofar as we're talking access to green spaces, is thus very much reflected in uh, the aim of the report. Biodiversity in terms of uh, animal and plant life here is directly addressed in the form of less land use. One of the things that I've I've found fascinating, obviously, is uh, the fourth area, which is urban to rural relocation schemes. Now, I'm a city girl originally, and for quite a long time I've been living in the countryside and I couldn't be happier. So let's talk about how they're going to work. Lots of people wouldn't feel like me. Lots of people just love to be in a city. I very much agree with you. Um, I personally grew up in a very small town in Germany and then uh, was given the opportunity to finish my education in London. Um, So I very much feel what you're saying. Um, The city has a lot of things to offer. And that is one of the main points. We have a lot of uh, housing, but there's a structural difference in housing supply between rural and urban areas because the city is so attractive, because there are jobs, because there are other other opportunities, because there is transport and all of these many things. Um, The main point, if we want to make urban areas more attractive, not only for sustainability reasons in terms of housing, but also because of population and demographic reasons, um, is that we need to address accessibility, both in transport and in the job market. And there's a lot going on already in this. Um, There are several countries in Europe, such as Germany, who are very much focusing on increasing the speed of internet connection, for example. You've seen during the COVID pandemic that um, a lot of people uh, moved out of cities or moved uh, away out of their offices at the very least uh, to work from home. Now, that can be used uh, very nicely and tied into this uh, subject because online work removed people from offices, so it negated the need for just as much office space, and it enabled people to live further away from their job. So this is the thing, I think there's there's a cultural shift happening, that you don't need to live where you work which I think is uh, something that might drive the attractiveness of rural areas. 
especially to city living folks. Um, but then it comes in to a lot of other factors, of course. Um, there's, uh, there's so many cultural things that a city has that a rural area cannot uh, offer at this point. Um, there are some very interesting schemes happening, especially in southern Europe, uh, where countries and uh, or even individual municipalities are offering monetary incentives to families, especially, to move into their villages in order to increase their population. There are so many. I mean, you have obviously I saw it in, in your report that you mentioned Spain, but mm-hmm. um, there's so many gorgeous, gorgeous villages that are they've been dying a death for a long time for all of the traditional reasons that people had to go to the city to work. But now, of course, that's reversing for, you know, quite a large segment of the population who can work online, you know. Exactly. Um, And as as you said, especially Spain, I think Portugal as well, some smaller villages in Switzerland as well. I think Albion was a very press heavy example because they offered quite a large amount of money um, to a single family to move there. But that is the entire point uh, which we're talking about is that a lot of these schemes are municipality based or city based even, which is amazing because this is people, this is villages saying and existing people saying we would like more people here. We have the land, we have the housing, we have the need for new people in our villages and our spaces, which are lovely, lovely spaces, but because of the lack of attractiveness or the lack of access to jobs most of the time, um, a lot of people have moved away. Now that we are moving towards a new, uh, more digital world, this enables us to work further away from our job. Thus, uh, our proposal was very much uh, tied into increasing these incentive schemes, uh, maybe putting them on a national or even regional level so that people are allowed to access these beautiful places. These places are revitalized and especially the housing stock that already exists is utilized. We don't need to build additional housing in the city just so people can work there. Certainly, because with the urban to rural relocation schemes, I think it asks a very important questions. So I am a human geographer by academic training. And we do a lot of studying of like the works of Lefebvre and the notion of the urban revolution. And I think that when you brought up uh, the biodiversity in the city and what the uh, conversions and sustainability and housing mean for biodiversity in the city and green spaces, is that within the city, we have concentrated so much of society and our resources in terms of the attractiveness and livability within the city. But we seek to be uh, closer to nature um, so much in the things that we do. And especially nowadays with the the this push towards uh, green spaces and sustainability uh, and the urban built environment, um, that I think that we people have an inherent desire to kind of return to the countryside, I think. I think it lacks the uh, attractiveness because of how much we've actually divested from the rural and building up rural communities that I think that the urban to rural relocation scheming and bringing people back from the city to the countryside, I think is something that over the course of the probably the next 10 to 20 years, I think we'll see a lot more of it actually just because people want to be closer to nature. It's part of who we are. It's why we seek to replicate it in the urban environment. Absolutely, Jordan. So the guest that was on the previous episode, a lady who's just finished being the president of the Landscape Institute of the UK. And she also talked fascinatingly about the health benefits uh, studies that she has immersed herself in. And in fact, that people leave hospital one day early 
Um, I don't know what diseases or issues that they had, but it's one of the studies you mentioned, one day early when they actually have a green space to look at through their window. That's fascinating. And I can very much echo that. I would tie into that as well, because uh, a lot of us uh, have fantasized about a city, especially those of us who grew up in rural areas. Uh, The green is a given to us. It's something we grew up with. It's something that allowed us to run around. It's something, uh, something that allowed us to be healthy. Um, And I mean, the city has a lot of detrimental health effects besides just the lack of access to green. Um, And I would like to tie that into a point I was thinking about earlier, and I think we brought up as well, is that why would people want to move to the countryside? And because we're talking about housing here, um, at least in the area of London where I grew up, we were talking a lot about how our parents uh, in our age, let's say 2030, lent some money and bought their first properties. Um, but that property um, at that point was a lot cheaper than it is today. Um, with housing prices going up in the cities, we're seeing a lack of access to what you call pr- moving up the property ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, if young people cannot ever enter the first rung of that ladder, then they cannot move up the property ladder in the city at the very least. If at this point the, ur- uh, the rural area is not attractive, that means the prices are also lower. Um, we've seen a lot of schemes. Um, I'm sure you've heard of it. Uh, there was this lovely scheme in southern Italy um, of the one euro homes. Have you heard of that? Yes, one? of course. Yes. yes, everyone heard about that one. These <laughs> these lovely old buildings, and you only have to invest a few uh, hundred thousand uh, euros into it. Um, that's obviously not a, not an excellent example um, <laughs> to start out uh, on the property ladder with. But there are similar uh, examples of a lot more accessible property. Um, in a lot of uh, urban areas, which are very cheap. In Germany, there was an example of an entire village being sold off in a block for a laughable price in comparison to city prices. And a lot of young people, I think, will find it attractive to move to the countryside just because they cannot ever hope to own um, uh, property in the city. And I think that's something we should be communicating to people a lot more. There is not one way of living. There is not one way of doing it. You don't have to follow or you even cannot follow the path that your parents took or that your grandparents took before you because the situation has changed so fundamentally. So that's what we do here. We're trying to find policies. We're trying to find ideas, how to move forward more sustainably, both in an environmental and in a social way. Fascinating. And and I was going to touch on the financial, which you've touched on obviously very, very well, Katharina, which which is, you know, it's a whole new life that's possible for people that maybe they just couldn't have had before. And on top of that, the more and more younger people that, you know, that I encounter just normally on a day-to-day basis and speaking to experts like from the previous um, episode, Jane Findlay, there's a lot of younger people who have climate anxiety now. So, of course, being around in in a rural situation, in a, in, a, in a place where they can actually embrace nature is going to be far more healthy for them psychologically and physically, I think. Yes, I, I very much agree, I agree with, with that, that as well. <laughs> I think we all can. So, um, I mean, we've already talked about it. We're based in Lund, which is a lovely, lovely little town in Sweden. I think we're only about, just roughly under 100,000 people. And what makes Lund so beautiful and why I think a lot of students are happy here is that there's a lot of green around. Um, there's the seaside, there's a lot of parks. And I think um, if you look at where students are moving just for university as well, Um, I think that's starting to be very much a consideration. And we are such a focus on sustainability here um, because everyone has that climate anxiety. Uh, And I mean, we frame that that as a negative thing, climate anxiety, this climate anxiety, that. But I think it's such a 
wonderful thing that our generation is so focused on the sustainability aspect just because we know how important it is and we know that this is something we will have to deal with in order to live and in order to live well in the future. I mean, I'm certainly not part of the younger generation, age 55, but I would also experience it to some extent. And I think that without any important things to get done, we generally need to feel some strong emotion before we progress on a path to doing something about whatever that might be, you know? I certainly agree. And I think that with the, the climate anxiety, I don't think, like I agree with Katharina, I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think it's how we, we use that anxiety is we have to we have to channel it towards the actual productive change and a change in the way that we live and the change in the way that we approach issues from now on. I mean, it, I feel like it's so easy to get caught into uh, a depression spiral when it comes to climate anxiety and feel that things are hopeless and that there is, what can we do? We're, we're, what are, we're trying. We feel, we feel this disconnect from, from the reality of the situation, but we do have a lot of power at the individual level to reshape how we do things in a way that is better for the environment, that is better for our communities, it's better for our cities. And I think that that is where a lot of change takes place is at that local level. And I think feeling that anxiety and feeling that push and drive that something needs to be done is what we need in order to actually achieve these goals. Yes, I very much agree with Jordan here. And I'd love to tie into uh, something you started out with, Jordan, um, using that climate anxiety. Um, I think that's a very important point, And current political developments have made a point of it as well, because we're talking about a lot, uh, entire generation or even multiple generations, hopefully, uh, as you've referred to, uh, to nicely, so Jackie. Um, we have so many people wanting to do something about climate change. We have so many people now interested in sustainability. What we do not have at this point, or what we're only slowly moving towards to, is uh, visibility and clarity. What is actually sustainable? Um, and I think that ties in quite nicely to one of our recommendations as well. One of the things we are talking about is that we need for new housing stock, if we are to build new housing stock, um, we very much need transparent certifications and certifications that are similar across all of Europe. Um, what we've seen currently with the passing of uh, the EU-level laws on greenwashing um, I think there was a very lovely report which uh, basically stated that about 60% um, of all sustainable or environmental friendly claims inside of the EU were just that, greenwashing. And in order to prevent that, both uh, not only in uh, general products, but especially in housing creation, what we think we need and what we would like to postulate is that we need uh, certifications. Um, we talked a lot about uh, the so-called LEED certification, which stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, which is already a step towards this. Um, it's basically a way to judge uh, new developments on categories such as materials, how much carbon is emitted in its building, its water and waste use. And we've had uh, adoptions of this. In, but like in individual buildings, there's some buildings in the US, in the UK, in Canada, and even one in China. However, these are individual buildings. These are individual prestige projects by firms or by cities. What we need is the usability and the transfer of these certifications to standard building practice. 
We need the EU, for example, or other uh, national uh, level or governments to implement and acknowledge certifications which are transparent both to builders and to buyers in order to innovate and in order to develop new stock that is actually sustainable and not just claiming to be. So that the climate anxiety is somewhat assoated, but for good cause. Definitely. And I think, Katerina, you know, just talking to uh, people in the UK, because of course, you know, the UK is in this sort of unusual situation since since leaving the EU, there's a, a certain amount of confusion just in the UK alone about what's going to happen going back to that law that I mentioned uh, in our chat before the interview, the new law that comes in in November of 2023 for biodiversity net gain. There's a level of confusion. If you just take that as um, an indicator of that's only in one country and without streamlined certification and laws across a larger landmass, as you mentioned, Europe, uh, or connected landmasses, if you like, we're absolutely lost. I mean, it can't be done without that. I mean, that's at least my perspective. It's, it's very much true. Um, if we look at any kind of sustainability or climate change um, policies, this is a global issue. Even if one country does, let's say, everything right, if we manage, if we somehow manage to find the holy grail of policies and we have, we have a lovely paradise just within our country, that's not going to hold up. Climate change, especially carbon emissions and these kind of factors, um, are very much a global problem. If we're talking biodiversity, um, even if the UK increases its, um, and I'm looking at it right now, and it says it's a way to contribute uh, the recovery of nature while developing the land still. Um, if it's only the UK who's doing this, this is going to be a lovely step forward, but we're still missing a very large part uh, of the other Europe. And also, if policies are only implemented in one area, that incentivizes people who are, might be disadvantaged or developers who might be disadvantaged by these policies to move out of the country. So we have uh, capital flight quite often or developer flight in this instant. I just wanted to say in terms of the biodiversity laws coming to effect in the UK based on like what Katarina was saying there about it, um, it's a way to increase, am I correct in hearing you correct, Katarina, it's a way of increasing the green space or the biodiversity of the UK while also maintaining development in the UK. Was that correct? That is according to the UK government, its goal at the very least. Um, I'm somewhat unclear on the specifics of it. Maybe Jackie could uh, tell us some more about it. I'm sure everyone will be very interested in it. Yeah, so basically the the concept is that there's meant to be 10% biodiversity net, net gain. So talking to somebody like Claire Wansbury, who's, you know, working with us for this, this training that we're, we're going to be producing, the big concern with people like herself and other top authorities mentioning Jane Findlay that I mentioned earlier on is that it could go into just being a tick box experience. This is the worrying thing. So on one hand, it's like perhaps going back to our earlier part of the conversation where we talked about the massive production of units in Croydon well, this looks amazing on paper, obviously, but what does it translate to into reality? So the step of the law that comes in you know, to full, full effect in November of 2023, it seems brilliant on the face of it. Now we're in the position where how it's implemented, and this is where there's not just you know an average person who's working on a building site will have some confusion. There does seem to be a level of confusion in general about it right now and how it will be implemented. 
It does look yes. like a very interesting policy insofar as it's in, in itself contraindicatory. Um, you say you want to develop a piece of land, which means you're going, you're going to be destroying the habitat that is directly on this land. Um, because if you're going to pull asphalt uh, in a place, I'm pretty sure uh, this is not particularly helpful to plant and fauna development. However, if it's, uh, it reminds me quite a lot of carbon offsetting. Um, of the way we approach that. Um, in the same way, we say you know, um, firms ca can, if they emit, emit carbon, buy carbon offsets. So you create carbon on the one hand, but somewhere completely different, someone captures carbon and you call that a net zero. Um, if we're going to be doing the same with land use and biodiversity, this would need a level of regulation and a level of evaluation that I would be very surprised if it was actually kept up. The same way we talk about, you know, if we cut down a tree, you must plant another. Uh, that is a very nice uh, way of framing it. However, in the first, I think, 10 to 20 years of its life, at the very least, a tree is carbon positive. Um, there is no such thing as transplanting, uh, at, at the very least, entire habitats. You can create other habitats, but until they develop, uh, develop to the scale and um, to the quality of the original habitat, that is not an instantaneous process. Yeah, absolutely correct. So there is that <laughs> sort of strange, yeah. One of the things that you touched on in, in the report was your reference to land use Let's, shall we explore that in connection with what we've just discussed? My thoughts were being drawn towards the issue within that bio, biodiversity type policy in, in terms of the construction and the building and increased development is the supply chain value chain process of procurement resources. And because we've talked about this as a global issue and with this law being primarily UK based, it, it's addressing the needs of the UK. And so how do you go about uh, measuring that? Because within that development process, you have procurement, you have to procure resources for these types of sustainable developments and for uh, construction and for new manufacturing of things. And so there is this imbalance, especially when it comes to certifications and with uh, these sustainability goals like carbon offsetting and uh, uh, net zero in that my company based in the UK that may be building this site may be sustainable, but maybe my suppliers downstream within, this, within the supply chain process that I'm procuring my goods from, those aren't being considered in the entire process of the production of uh, space or materials or goods. Um, so is, there is this, this questioning of the actual true sustainability of development when it comes to uh, the entire supply chain process, which is what my, my thoughts are in terms of questioning with, the, with this biodiversity initiative. Katharina. Um, I would like to tie into your question on land use. Um, I very much echo what Jordan was saying about biodiversity as well. Um, if we're talking land use, um, I think this ties into one of our main points, which was basically less new um, building is uh, less use, both of resources and land. Um, so the way we're addressing this um, is that we want to reduce resource use, carbon emissions and land use. These are into in, in, inextricably interwoven and uh, we should be addressing them collectively in the way that buildings that are already built the biodiversity or whatever habitat used to be under those buildings is at this point already been destroyed especially if it's older 
um, older buildings. And that's not something that we will be looking uh, to renaturalize in any time soon. However, if, uh, if you buy new land and if you develop new buildings, you're going to be taking apart so many existing ecosystems. Um, an example of this, for example, was in Germany. Um, we, can, we can talk about uh, housing specifically, or we can talk about, for example, Berlin. Berlin used to be a huge wetland. Um, and a lot of countries uh, in the northern northern parts of uh, areas of the northern parts of Germany, of the Netherlands, and also Sweden, uh, used to be wetlands. Wetlands are these beautiful havens for biodiversity, but they are also usually um, very good for access to water, which is something um, human settlements are very much keen on uh, for obvious reasons. And this is something we have a tendency to build on. But in order to, for example, build on wetlands, we completely dry them out. Um, and their biodiversity is completely gone, and we're not looking to reestablish it. Um, so if we're talking sustainability and land use, uh, the reduction of new development is the most important thing we should be talking about. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that, Jordan. I agree with what Faye said in terms of the, the new construction is something that we absolutely have to take into consideration, and especially where that new construction is occurring, and largely... And I think we t we definitely talked about this in our paper, uh, which is that a lot of new development is commercial development. It's for commercial businesses. So with the commercial spaces to converting them to residential spaces, we're taking old commercial buildings that aren't in use because a lot of companies will come in to areas and want the ability to build their own new commercial spaces designed specifically to the needs of that business rather than repurposing uh, existing commercial building stock within that area. So then you have this new commercial construction uh, boom in these areas that are building these new commercial spaces for new commercial use, leaving behind the old commercial spaces. And so we have to consider that and what type of development is taking place whenever we're looking at the, the greater picture of these sustainability initiatives. Definitely. Now, what about materials? I've, I think the three of us are undoubtedly in agreement that, you know, repurposing is definitely the way to go. But in the situations where, you know, that is not uh, possible or, you know, because the policies haven't been put into place or for whatever reasons it might be, what about the use of materials? Let's talk about concrete that was in your report. So with, with concrete, we looked at uh, an example of uh, recycled concrete implementation in Switzerland. And within that, there was numerous, numerous buildings in Switzerland that are now being produced with recycled concrete. And that is, I think, indicative in showing of resourcefulness within the economy and procurement of resources to address issues of sustainable building materials within the actual new building of things in the environment. Um, so we're talking about the example of Switzerland, which is a very interesting case study um, insofar as Switzerland is very much a pioneer in using recycled concrete. Um, Zurich even has some city level policies which um, uh, state that uh, all new public buildings at the very least uh, must be built with uh, recycled concrete in part. 
And uh, I think some studies from there have shown that a, I think recycled concrete can provide nearly 90% of concrete demand. Um, as we stated beforehand, there is so much building stock already available. Whether it is livable at this point, what are the condition of it is, even if it is not at this point fit for housing or for habitation, it can still be reused. The materials aren't lost. Um, and we're talking about these. This is something that is not only sustainability uh, of interest for sustainability, but also of interest for financial region, uh, reasons. Um, at this point, um, recycled concrete and these kind of materials are still more expensive than uh, traditional materials. But the development of uh, mat building materials, of the cost of building materials, um, might turn that trend around in the very near future. We've seen very much that sand, or at least the kind of sand that we need to make concrete that actually stays up, um, is very much running short. Um, we cannot use desert sand for this kind of thing. So we've seen a lot of um, illegal projects starting. And uh, for example, we we're talking biodiversity in I think South America, and there were several several instances where it was reported that via uh, bi very bi biodiverse habitats were being ground down into sand, quite literally, in order to satisfy our demand for concrete and buildings. Um, if we're talking about um, other uh, materials, if you look at Sweden or the Nordics in general, building material, uh, the prices for these have risen immensely in the past years. So piece by piece, um, governments, uh, as well as research facilities and developers are becoming interested in alternatives, also from a financial perspective. Um, back in 2013, um, the Life Science uh, Research Center in Berlin of, uh, at the Humboldt University, uh, I believe, launched a project, um, about 30, 35 million, I believe, uh, euros to study the use of recycled concrete. So this is not just a small thing. This is something people are becoming aware of. This is something developers are starting to become interested in, no matter what their stance of sustainability may be. Um, we also talk a lot um, about some other things. Um, the other thing we were talking about was not only concrete, um, but biocement. Mm -hmm. um, we have some very interesting projects, um, once again, public as well, as well as some private developments, uh, which have already started using it. Um, I don't know if you've uh, heard of it. There was a very lovely uh, tunnel project in Belgium called the Ken Kennedy and please excuse my pronunciation, the Liefkenschuk <laughs> tunnel, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> which, um, which showed um, very, very interesting things insofar as biocement um, can even be, have better properties than existing materials. Biocement, for example, has certain self-healing properties. And if we move towards this research, if we invest in research for sustainable materials, this may enable us not to just con even just continue our current building habits, but it might um, enable us to build better and in a potential future, um, even cheaper than conventionally. Um, so what we're talking about as well is that um, not only are there uh, a lot of options for sustainable material use, but that we need to incentivize these. Um, we talked a lot about the financial um, incentives um, to use these sustainable materials, but as of this, as of today, this is a future prospect. This is a trend that we can see developing in the future. But as of today, sustainable material use is still a little bit more, or in some cases, a lot more expensive than um, traditional materials. Um, this is where our uh, policy recommendations for governments and regional areas, or even the EU, 
uh, to subsidize the use of these materials. We have seen in Germany a very, very a successful example of uh, subsidizing sustainability in uh, construction insofar as the photovoltaic uh, or the green roof policy. Um, so in Germany, um, I think we've been subsidizing uh, solar panels and heat pumps in private homes for several years. And I think we have seen about 1.3 million uh, photovoltaic systems on domestic family buildings alone. This is a huge amount. And if you talk to people, if you ask them, why, why did you install this? The sustainability aspect is definitely in one part. The energy security aspect is another part. But the thing that comes up quite often is that they said, I could never afford this on off my own dime. Photovoltaic systems, if you have to uh, afford them out of your own pocket, so lately, are, a are very, very expensive. So the government coming in here and providing subsidies to make these accessible for private homes, not just for large developers, was a crucial point in getting uh, this particular sustainability uh, policy to succeed uh, when we basically propose the same thing be done with uh, sustainable material use in construction um, if we introduce uh, these incentives to at the very least match uh, the prices um, of uh, sustainable materials to the prices of traditional materials or at the very least lower them a little bit um, to get people to start using them to start getting used to them and to of course thus uh, increase the sustainability and carbon and carbon in terms of carbon emissions and resource use of new bills or reconstruction. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, solar panels themselves, they've gone down, you know, significantly in, in price. But the thing with an actual set, the biggest expenses is, is decent batteries. That's what's hugely expensive. Very much so. And um, in order to make it accessible to, let's say, normal people and not just uh, those who can uh, afford it as a gimmick or as something of curiosity, um, we need to make sure that this doesn't become a class divide in some aspect as well. Okay, I absolutely agreed. Jordan, any, any last words, anything you'd like picked up by hopefully some policymakers who are listening? I, I think that uh, um, I think we've 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 covered the entirety of the paper now at this point, and I think that my messaging towards policymakers would be mostly to listen to what the the market is saying. Is that clearly there is demand, there is a need for this type of shift towards these types of conversions, towards the adoption of sustainable materials towards these types of uh, uh, schemes to better address sustainability issues in the housing environment. And I think that in every case, however, they do choose to go about it. I think listening to where the demand is right now is what I hope the policymakers out there are doing in order to address and to meet these needs. Katharina, last words on the same subject. Policymakers, are listening now, what, to, what would you like to say to them? I'd like to echo what Jordan said in the first place. And I'd like to add one more thing, which is we have what we need. We have one planet. We have a set of resources. Use what you can and make sure that what you have is actually being utilized, be that the resources that already exist or be that the housing stock that is already there. So as we expected, Pete, an absolutely fascinating discussion. It is the big challenge, isn't it, for policymakers, for the construction industry, and for every person, really, having enough homes 
in the right places, the right type of homes, and homes which can be built without having a negative impact on the environment, you know, and and being sustainable, addressing issues such as overuse of materials. All of these things are big, big topics for the construction industry and the world. But there's some useful insights there. Yeah, definitely, Steve. Like we have, um, as we always say, we have so many challenges in, within the industry, and we, we de- definitely have policies that we need to put in place, and we and we've got habits that we need to put in place to help with the climate change battle, and also in general, just to make sure that people's way ways of lives improve. Because you know there there is certainly you know a housing shortage. There's 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 a there's a lot of different cultural problems that are going on in everyday life, as well as the the uh, the other battles that we have on hand in terms of you know ensuring that we you know live in harmony with our planet so you know the discussion there today was great it was it certainly gives us the insight into into how people get the information that they that they then use to make policy changes uh, it was refreshing to hear in some ways that negatives have been identified and and obviously positives have been identified as well and that information is being spread to to the right people what i think one thing that certainly has come out of, of not only discussion today but out of the many discussions that we have here on constructive voices is that getting people to to move from the city um, and go to the country is is certainly something that it helps regenerate maybe cities and, and towns that have been dying and it helps you know alleviate the, the pressure that's being built up within our cities as well if we can do that and do it in a in a in a environmentally friendly way we're definitely going in the right direction i think we're, we're getting two things we're, we're, we're getting people are, are then living a better life in terms of i think so many people who who have who have made the change to go from um, an urban area to to a rural area it doesn't matter what country they're they, they've done this in they get the benefits from it the fresh air the freedom, the space, the nature, all of those really positive things that they probably were slightly unaware of because of, of the, you know, living in a, in, a, in a city, you just don't get to see, touch and feel um, all of those things. It's good to hear that that there's research out there showing the positives. And, and also, again, we've discussed this a lot. It's really the one very positive thing that's come out of the pandemic, out of the COVID pandemic, is that we ended up having no choice but for people to, to do this. And um, people realise that it can work. Also, our, our our broadband networks and our, our ways of living at home have improved. Not every area, but in a lot of areas. And it therefore means that people can have a choice. They can work from home two, three days a week, maybe go to the office a couple of days a week, and it can, it can happen successfully. And therefore, that allows policymakers, it gives them other options. Whereas I think those options were kind of you know being discussed but people didn't really believe in them whereas I think now the biggest case study that could have ever happened is is the is the COVID pandemic and it, it clearly shown that you know people can work from home, people can relocate to to a, a more rural area, get the benefits of having a life in a rural area, but also still have the benefits of having a job that, you know, pays them the, the, the money that they need to, to earn to, to live day to day. And they can do it. They can work remotely and work successfully. Like that. Well, it's one of those topics, Pete, that I know you're passionate about. We're very passionate about here on Constructive Voices. And there are a lot of good people doing good things to progress the whole situation and to overcome the challenges that the industry and the wider world faces. So, 
The conversation will continue building here on Constructive Voices and we'll talk again next time. As always, Steve, I look forward to our next chat and we'll, we'll keep on diving into all these different subjects and trying to give our listeners the best possible insight that we can. And that's all for this episode of Constructive Voices. Please take a moment to share it with others who may find it interesting. Follow or subscribe to get the latest episodes automatically on your favourite podcast app and rate and review the podcast if you can. You can also listen to the latest episode by saying, Alexa, play Constructive Voices podcast. Here's Constructive Voices. Here's the latest episode. And on our website where there's lots more information too. That's constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something. Mm-hmm.